Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, let's turn our attention uh, to God's Word. Thank you for your patience with those announcements. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6 is our passage. Uh, I'm just going to begin, just going to go right to it and just tell you what this sermon's about. It's going to get right to it and give you this statement because it's a statement that um, you might find surprising, might seem counterintuitive to you, might seem kind of grim, might seem kind of uh, severe. Uh, to some of you, this statement actually might sound downright ridiculous, but it is what the Bible teaches. And it's what I'm going to try to prove to you and present to you uh, this morning. It's this, that it is better to suffer than to sin. It is better for you and me as God's people to be prepared to suffer instead of sin. There's a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. He says that there's more evil in the smallest sin than there is in the greatest suffering. Now, let me clarify so that you understand what I mean and what I don't mean. I am not saying here today, nor does the Bible say, that comfort or pleasure are bad things. God is a God of comfort. God comforts us in our affliction. His rod and His staff comfort us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God richly provides for us all good things to enjoy in Psalm 16, it says that at the right hand of the Father there are pleasures forevermore. God is not a killjoy. He's not trying to make your life miserable. He's not against pleasure and comfort. So that's not what I'm saying, but neither am I saying that suffering in itself is a good thing. I'm not saying that. Cancer and car accidents that take the lives of young teenagers are wicked, horrible, awful things, and in response to those, our hearts should be grieved. Nor am I saying that we should seek suffering to try to bring it upon ourselves, nor am I saying that if you're not suffering and you're in a good time and you're enjoying many comforts and blessings in your life right now, that that's something you should feel guilty about. I'm not saying that either. But what I am saying is that it's better to suffer than to sin. That is, if you're given the choice to sin to avoid suffering or to suffer to avoid sin, you should choose the latter. Suffering to avoid sin. This is what uh, Burroughs says. There's a picture of Jeremiah Burroughs wrote in the 17th century. He says this, All men are afraid of afflictions and troubled at affliction. But where's the man or woman that fears sin and flies from it as from a serpent? and is troubled at sin more than any affliction. Where is that person? Well, again, I mentioned some of you might just find this this sounds kind of ridiculous to you. I did an internet search on that phrase, better to suffer than to sin, and um, saw some comments about that. One person said, this is what shows that Christianity is immoral. When reality comes to us, Nobody does this, another person said. Another person said, thanks for making more atheists. 
Well, I want to look to 1 Peter 4 and seek by the Scriptures to show you that this is what the Bible teaches. So, if you have your Bible open, please stand. I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 6, and seek to make this point. 1 Peter 4, starting with verse 1, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. God in heaven, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, why do I say this, that it's better to suffer than to sin? Um, I'm going to give you three reasons for this, and the first is this. It shows your willingness to break with sin. It shows your willingness to repent, to turn away, to cut off sin from your life when you're willing to suffer instead of sin. I think that's what Peter says here at the beginning. By the way, we're going through a sermon series on Peter. For those of you who might be new, we're just kind of working through this book one passage at a time. And let's look here at verse 1. And Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Is there a problem with my mic? I'm hearing some noise. It's okay? Okay, very good. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So Peter is giving this exhortation that we should adopt an attitude, that we should think in the same way that Christ did. And the way that Christ thought is that it was, it was advisable for him to suffer in the flesh. He gave himself to suffering. As we look through the Gospels, we see there's all sorts of examples of the way Jesus suffered willingly. It says in the Gospels that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He was a prophet without honor in his own hometown. People didn't acknowledge him for who he was. He came to his own people, and his people, the Jews, they rejected him. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Jesus was laughed at. He was ridiculed. He was whipped. He was scourged. He was beaten. He went to a cross. He bore the wrath of God and condemnation and anger of God upon himself and anger and condemnation that belonged to others, and yet he submitted to that and bore that wrath and bore that penalty. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and was sweating drops of blood. That's a life of suffering. And friends, Jesus entered willingly into that. These aren't things that happened to him accidentally. These weren't just circumstantial incidents. These were things he was fully aware would be part of his life, and he gave himself to that life of suffering 
It says in Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him. He did this out of love. He did this for you. He suffered for you out of a motivation to save you and redeem you. Jesus chose a life of suffering. And that's what Peter's talking about here. That's Jesus' attitude, suffering in the flesh. Now, you know one thing that Jesus would not do under any circumstance? He would not sin. He would not commit even the smallest, tiniest internal sin that perhaps nobody would know about. Jesus would not do that. He willingly suffered but would not sin. We're reminded of this in 1 Peter where it says this, He committed no sin, no the, uh, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threatened, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I think it says, my quotes are being cut off there somehow, Dan, on the back screen, uh, the bottom part of that. But what Peter's saying here is that Jesus committed no sin, but, but look at what he says here in the second sentence. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. I think most of us would consider that a fairly small sin, wouldn't we? That when we're reviled, that we might say something in return, that when we're insulted, we might have a word in response. I mean, I think everybody says, well, everybody does that. I do that. I've seen many people do that. What's the big deal? Jesus wouldn't even do that. He would not sin in even the smallest way, but he was willing to suffer. Friends, I could just end the sermon, I think, right here. Case closed. I've made my point. Why is it better to suffer than to sin? Because Jesus willingly suffered and never sinned. That's why. But there's more to say, and there's more text here to look at. Look what Peter goes on to say at the end of verse 1. Several verses here, kind of difficult to interpret. Um, But here Peter says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, what, What does that mean? Um, I guess it could mean that when we suffer in our flesh that we kind of atone for our own sin. But I don't think that, that's what that means because only Jesus can atone for sin. Uh, some might look at this and say that if we suffer enough in our life, maybe we get to the point where we never sin again, ever. I don't think that's what it's saying because 1 John 1 says if we say that we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I think what Peter is saying here is that when you and I suffer in the flesh, when we're willing to undergo suffering, affliction, difficulty, it's showing a willingness in our hearts to break with sin. It's showing that God's grace is at work in us and giving us a desire for obedience that exceeds our desire for sin. And if we're willing to suffer for that, what better evidence is it that our heart's desire for that sin is beginning to wane and fade away? We have such little interest in that sin anymore that we will even suffer in order to not do it. That's what I think Peter is saying here. Sometimes I think we, we, we get this idea that sin is really all about the desire for pleasure 
and, and the desire for, for comfort, and, and maybe that's a big part of it, but I, I think probably what's motivating a lot of our sin is more the avoidance of suffering. We are just a people that don't like to suffer. We love our comfort. We want things to be easy. And we tend to think that if things are easy, then that's when I'll grow. But friends, that's not the way it works. Look at what uh, this guy named Tim Bascom says. We think we'll be able to pursue God better without danger or hardship, and yet it works in just the opposite way. Nothing is more difficult than to grow spiritually when you're comfortable. Well, that's one of the reasons why the church in the United States, I think, is flagging and confused in so many ways. We've had it so good. We've had it so comfortable for 200-plus years in this nation. And generally, the church does not grow in a climate of comfort. And so what Peter is telling us here is a willingness to suffer shows a hatred for sin. Now, let me just kind of give you some examples about, you know, what am I thinking about here in terms of suffering? Well, a few, few simple examples. How about when it comes to lying? Here's a reason that we often lie. We think, if I tell the truth, it's going to bring a certain amount of suffering in my life. It's going to bring affliction. It's going to bring difficulty. I don't want that difficulty, so I'm going to sin. I'm going to lie so I don't have to deal with that suffering. I sin instead of suffer. But when you get to the point where you say, you know what? It's going to hurt to tell the truth. I don't know what's going to be the result of this. This is going to be a painful thing. I'm going to have to suffer probably for it, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm going to submit myself to that. What that shows is you're beginning to break, your heart is breaking away from the sin of deceit and the sin of lying. How about giving money? Another good example. Why are some of us stingy with our money? We don't give. Why is that? We don't give to missionaries. We don't give to our church. Because we think, well, the less money that I have, the more likely I'm going to suffer. The more likely I'm not going to get the things that I want. The more likely I'm going to have to do without. So I'm not going to give. I'm going to keep my money for myself. But when you get to the point where you're saying, you know what? I'm going to give of my money even to the point where it hurts. Even so I might not be able to do this thing or that thing that I'd hoped to or I'd always been doing, I'm going to endure that suffering and embrace that suffering for the sake of doing what God wants me to do, which is to be generous with my resources. When you begin to do that, you begin to be generous. What you're showing is, I'm breaking with the sin of greed and idolatry and materialism. I'm, I'm ceasing from that. How about with sexuality? I mean, one of the reasons that Sexual immorality is so rampant, I think, in our cultures because there's this message that says this, that if you don't act on your impulses and your sexual desires, that there's actually something unhealthy about that. You're repressing yourself. The way to be healthy is just to engage in your passions and express yourself sexually any way that you can. But if you're willing to say, you know what? The world is telling me I should be able to have whatever pleasure that I want. The world is telling me that happiness is owed to me. But I, as a single person, am not going to engage in sexual relations until I'm married. That I, as a person with same-sex attraction, am not going to engage 
in homosexual activity, that I'm not going to do that. I'm going to turn away from that because my love for obedience to God exceeds my love for that sin. That's what begins to be revealed. Look what uh, Peter goes on to say in verse 2. When we do this, when we cease from sin, it's so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer, what? For human passions, but for the will of God. We begin to endure the suffering, the suffering of not engaging in our passions anytime we want. And that shows our heart is breaking from lust, from sexual immorality, so that we're being better prepared to submit to God's will for our lives rather than our own passions. That's what Peter's saying. It's better to suffer than to sin because when you do that, you're showing that you're beginning to break sin away from your heart. Well, there's a second thing that Peter tells us here. It not only shows your willingness to break with sin, but to suffer rather than sin shows that you are different than the world. You're different. You're not like everybody else. Remember what Peter commanded us back in chapter 2. He said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Honorable. Gentiles doesn't necessarily mean just non-Jew in this context. It means unbelievers. Keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. Live an upright life so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify God, that they'll notice that there is something different about you. See, that's one of the reasons Jesus saved us. Not because we're better people than the world. He saved us so that we, by our lifestyle, would set an example of righteousness and godliness in our lives. And so, this is what Peter talks about here. He starts explaining what the world is like in verse 3. And he starts setting out this contrast between the way the world lives and the way a Christian lives. So he says this, the time that is past, verse 3, it suffices for doing what the Gentiles, that is, unbelievers, non-Christians, those outside of the faith community, the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What, what Peter is saying here is that the time that you've had living that lifestyle like unbelievers, the time that you've spent indulging your passions and doing whatever you want should be sufficient to reveal to you the emptiness and total futility of that lifestyle. Now, of course, that doesn't apply to all of us. Some of us have been brought up in Christian families. We've known the gospel forever. We, we haven't lived this kind of life in our past. And if that's you... You should thank God that He placed you in a Christian family and that you were brought up a follower of Jesus, just like we're hoping for Amelia. But I know there are some of us who can look back to our past and we can see a great history of indulgence and disobedience. And Peter says, you know, can't you see? Why would you want to go back to that? Same thing that Paul says here um, in Romans says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? It says, for the end of those things is death, it says. I'm not sure why um, the screen is not showing the whole verse, but you can look that up if you want, Romans 6, 20 through 21. 
That's the time that has passed, Peter is saying. And then he goes on and he gives some examples of what that lifestyle is like. In verse 3, what does it look like to live in this way? Well, it's to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's what life apart from Christ looks like. If you've ever doubted the relevance of the Bible, look no further than this passage written 2,000 years ago and describing human activity that continues to go on throughout this world and particularly continues to go on on college campuses. This is a description of a typical college campus, isn't it? saw an article by NPR back in September, and they were talking about um, the tendency among college students to, to drink. About 80% of college students drink alcohol regularly, the program said. Half of those binge drink. They interviewed one young lady who said, you know, you get on a college campus and you just walk out the door and, and there it is. There's a party five nights out of the week. It's just expected. I mean, when you go to college, it's like a rite of passage. That's what you do. You party. Ball State has been listed as the fourth best party school in the state of Indiana out of 36 universities or colleges. What Peter is saying here is, is that if you're a Christian, that's not you anymore. You don't indulge in drunkenness. You don't just indulge in your passions. You're not getting drunk at drinking parties. You're not going to orgies. You're not going to places where people are just freely and wildly having sex with one another. You're not doing that because you're a Christian. You're different. You're set apart from the world. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been set apart. That's what grace does to a person. Grace is wonderful. It's this free gift of salvation that we can't pay for, we can't earn, we can't do anything to get. That's what's so wonderful about it. But grace doesn't stop there. Grace teaches us something, right? This is what it says in Titus 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. Well, how does this lead to suffering? Well, the passage goes on. <clears throat> Peter says, as he lists these uh, number of examples of indulgence, in verse 4, he says, Then with respect to this, they, that is those who practice these things, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So here's where the suffering comes in. Here you are, you know, you're, you're invited to go out and join in the festivities that are described to us here in verse 3, but you know what? You're a Christian. You've, you've received Christ as your Savior. You know Jesus. He's forgiven you, and now you want to live for Him, and you have this opportunity to go to an event like this, and you say, sorry, no thank you. And you know what happens when, when you do that? Maybe some of you have experienced this. You find that your friends are surprised they can't believe it. What, you're, 
we've done this for so long. We've always gone out and partied together. We've always gone out and gotten drunk together. And now, now you don't want to do that with me. What, what's, what's the matter? They're, they're surprised, but not only are they surprised, but Peter goes on to say they malign you. They criticize you now. Then they start to say things like this. Oh, I guess you're too good for us now. Oh, you're one of those high and mighty holy roller Christians now. Well, why don't you go hang out with your Christian friends? I, I guess you have no place with us anymore. And, and you get maligned and you get criticized. And these are people you like. These people re, you respect and you love. And now there's kind of a rupture in the relationship. It just isn't like it has always been. And that's suffering. That's a form of suffering. You're, you're lonely enough as it is. And now there's this increased loneliness that's setting in because you're different from the world and you're making decisions that are different from the world. I'm not saying you're, you're better than the world. Be very careful about that. Not to be thinking, well, since I'm not doing these things, therefore I'm better and I can have this self-righteous, judgmental attitude toward these people. That's not what this text is saying. It's just saying you're a sinner saved by grace and God has called you to be different. He set you apart. You're a child of God now. So why is it better to suffer <clears throat> than to sin? Because it shows you're different from the world. One last thing. It's better to suffer than to sin because it shows that you're ready for judgment. It shows you're ready for judgment. Here's, here's one reason why it's better to suffer than to sin when we think of, of judgment. Suffering, friends, doesn't make you liable to the judgment of God. You're not going to be judged for having to suffer. But sin does. Sin makes you liable to the judgment of God. That's what Peter goes on to say here, is that these people who have lived in this way, in this flood of debauchery, in verse 4, they, verse 5, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Very interesting passage here, because it's very popular today to believe that you're only going to have to give an account to the God that you happen to worship or the religion that you happen to profess. So yeah, Jesus will, excuse me, Christians will have to give an account to Jesus one day. Muslims will have to give an account to Muhammad one day. And atheists won't have to give an account to anyone. So everybody just has their own kind of personal constructed realities to which or to whom they're accountable, but that doesn't seem to be what Peter is saying here, does it? These people who are engaging in this sinful lifestyle given here in verse 4, they're going to have to give an account to the God of the Bible. They're going to stand before Jesus, and they're going to have to give an account for the way they've spent their lives. That's what this passage is saying. This God who's going to judge the living and the dead, that's just a way of saying Everybody, everybody alive on the earth now, everyone who will be alive in the future, and everyone who has passed away in the distant past, every single individual is going to stand before this God who is ready to judge. Do you see that in verse 5? He's ready. Right now, He's ready. You know, God doesn't have to get His things together to get ready to judge. He doesn't have to consult with anybody. He doesn't have to review any material to prepare himself to judge. He's ready right now, at this moment. And for all we know, judgment day might be by the end of this evening. That's how ready God is. And so Peter makes this point here. 
everyone's going to have to give an account to God for the lives, lives they've lived. Now, what hope do we have in the face of this chilling prospect that we're going to have to face God one day? And that's in verse 6. This is why the gospel was preached. <laughs> this is why there's a gospel. And not just that there is a gospel, but it's a gospel that was proclaimed, it was preached, it was made known. This is why Jesus came. This is why there's a Messiah. This is why God in the person of His Son came into this earth and lived an obedient life, fulfilled all righteousness. This is why Jesus died. That's why He paid that penalty. That's why He shed His blood. This is why He resurrected from the dead. It's to give people an opportunity to escape the coming judgment. And Jesus now calls and He says, Come to Me. Come to Me, you who are weary. Come to Me, you who are weighed down by your shame and your guilt. Come and believe in Me. Turn from your sin and lay your sin at the cross. I'll forgive you. I'll receive you. I'll love you. I'll pardon you. I'll fill you with My Spirit. I'll make you My child, My son, My daughter. Just turn from your sin and believe in Me. That's all I'm asking. Do it. And you won't have to face judgment day in fear. That's what God is saying here. That's what Peter is saying. Have you done that? Are you ready for that? Are you ready? Are you ready for judgment day? Peter goes on. And he says in verse 6, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. Now, what does that mean? It's another <clears throat> statement that has engendered a number of different interpretations. Um, some people take this to mean that the gospel is preached to those who are, who are dead, who have now died, and they're going to have a second chance to believe in Jesus after death. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were back in chapter 3, and there's a certain appeal to that interpretation, right? I mean, I think we all kind of want that to be true. I mean, wouldn't it be great if those who just didn't come to Jesus in this life, they're going to get another chance? Is that what it means? No. Uh, that's not what it means. That's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Uh, it doesn't seem to be consistent with what Peter is saying here. You know, there's this judgment day coming. People are going to have to give an account to God. Why would he say that if they'll have a chance after they die to receive Jesus? I mean, this completely reduces any urgency to believe in Jesus now. And certainly we wouldn't want to say it's better to suffer than to sin. If you can sin your whole life and just do whatever you want, and then die, and then have a chance to receive Jesus afterward. I mean, that, that's just not consistent with the teaching of the Scriptures. All this means is that the gospel was preached to those who are dead now, but the gospel was preached to them when they were alive. They're, they're dead now, but when they were alive, they heard the gospel, they believed in Jesus, and so the way the passage goes on, it says that though they were judged in the flesh the way people are, that is, that is though they died like everybody else, because all people suffer from Adam's curse and die, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, everybody dies, but that they might, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Christians, those who heard the gospel when they were alive and believed in Jesus, now live the way God does, even though their bodies are dead. That's what Peter is saying here. Their bodies are in the grave, their spirits are alive because they heard the gospel preached and they believed. So the question again for you, friends, is 
you're all alive, right? I mean, most of you, I think, look pretty alive. And friends, you're hearing the gospel preached right now, right now. You've heard the name of Jesus, and you're hearing the call to believe in Him and be saved. Better to suffer than to sin. Better to suffer whatever suffering might come from obedience to God. Better to do that than to sin, because sin is what makes us liable to God's judgment. But thank be to God that there is a gospel that frees us from that condemnation. Well, let me close by, um, I think some of you know about The Hobbit, this new movie that's come out, the third version of The Hobbit. <clears throat> I haven't seen it myself, but I just want to remind you about uh, what hobbits are like. First uh, paragraph here from The Hobbit says, um, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell. It's not a dry, bare, sand, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or, or to eat. No, it was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. <laughs> Hobbits love comfort. And without being silly or funny here, I just want to ask, are, are you more like a hobbit? <laughs> or are you more like a Christian? Like the person that's being described here, in 1 Peter. Hobbits demand comfort. They avoid displeasure at any chance. Christians, we don't sin to avoid suffering. We suffer to avoid sin. That's God's call to you. Jesus suffered for us. Let us be prepared to suffer for Him.